One of the most recognizable figures of all time is simply named the Grim Reaper. He's typically caricatured as a skeleton wearing a black robe. His face is nearly hidden by his hood. His hands are mere bones, and you see them exposed as he raises that one particular possession of his, that scythe or sickle. In the Western world, going all the way back to the medieval period, he often rode or was pictured as riding a pale horse or was driven in an old coach pulled by pale white horses. You can trace the Grim Reaper all the way back to Rome. In fact, even before then, through the mythologies of Greece, Kronos was supposedly the Grecian god, the original Grim Reaper. He was given a scythe or a sickle by his mother as he had been held captive by his father inside of earth. And with that sickle, he escaped and then killed his father. The trouble was he became so fearful of his own life, he used that sickle on everyone who came near him. Now the character of the Grim Reaper developed through the centuries as one who actually just came to take people away when their time was up. He supposedly had the power to determine death with the mere touch of his sickle. It was he who led departed spirits to the afterworld. In the occultic world, the Grim Reaper is actually the symbol of death. He is universally held in some form or another. Eventually, everyone meets up with this hooded agent of death. One poet put it rather simply when he wrote, You can be a king or a street sweeper, but everyone dances with the Grim Reaper. So the world over attempts to mitigate their fear of this terminal touch of the Grim Reaper. In one Wall Street Journal article I was given some time ago by a church member, it talked about some rather extravagant efforts on the part of a lot of people in one particular country to try to avoid the concept of death. It's the country of Madagascar. When you think of Madagascar, you think of animals escaping to go back and live there, right? (laughs) These are people who save up money for years. And then, with that money, throw a party. They exhume the body of some departed loved one. Wrap them in a new shroud. And then introduce them to all of the people in their lives. They pay dearly to cater food for hundreds of people who will come to these special events. This one particular man interviewed had more than a thousand come that he paid to feed. These departed family members come in nightmares to their living relatives complaining that the tomb is cold. And if they loved them, they would let them out in what they call a ceremony of turning the dead. Now those who do this for their deceased relatives, are assured that their departed loved ones will give them life and health and, and wealth and happiness. But if the dead are left neglected and cold in their tomb, they will bring unemployment, disease, and misery. So these people are convinced that those who've died must be familiar with their lives in order to help them. And so they literally stroll through their towns 
carrying their shrouded loved ones on their shoulders, showing their ancestors what's new, new buildings that have been built, uh, new family members. They introduce them to children who've been born since they were placed in the tomb. They interviewed one individual who'd become a Christian and who refused to participate any longer. He stated that he no longer believed that the departed dead were even interested in a party and that they certainly couldn't respond with gratitude having been brought from their tombs for this revelry. For his disbelief, he and many other believers are often disowned. I found it interesting that in the 19th century, the queen of this country ordered her soldiers to push all converts to Christianity off the nearby cliffs, which they did. And today, much of their religion is bondage and fear of dying. This article added that people in this country try to lead a good life so that they will not be forgotten by their families when they die. And so they they live in such a way that they themselves will be brought out of their tombs one day to party with the families of their own in the light of day. How tragic is that? But this is their way to somehow avoid the touch of the grim reaper, to mitigate that touch. Reminds me of the terrible reality of life after death for those who don't know Christ, revealed for us in Luke 16 by the Lord who spoke of the man in torment as he begged for a drop of water to touch his tongue. And when he was refused, he said, please send somebody back to my family and warn them of this place. He was refused that as well, of course. Listen, if these shrouded skeletons in Madagascar could actually speak to the revelers at their party, they would not be promising them wealth and happiness. They would be warning them of this place yet to come. The Grim Reaper is nothing to celebrate. Once death has indeed touched the living, and translated them to their eternal state, there is no turning back. For the believer, this is the assurance. We do not fear some grim reaper. For to be absent from the body is to be present with whom? The Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. There is the immediate translation of the spirit, the immaterial part of you, which is really you. To heaven, to be with Christ. Our bodies go in the grave to decay, but there will be a coming, a resurrection where our bodies will be instantly recreated and glorified, reunited with our spirits that have been enjoying the presence of Christ in that glorified, immortal state to enjoy the kingdom and the eternal state of the new heaven and the new earth. First Corinthians 15. Now, now just where did mankind Get this universal concept of a grim reaper from the truth of God written on their hearts. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Mankind knows without ever having read that it is appointed unto man to die. And after that, something. The Bible clearly states it is the judgment. So mankind, because he has this intuitive sense that something's happening, and they may not be ready for it, and it may not be very good, they come up with 
religious escape hatches and spiritual loopholes to try and bring some comfort. Maybe we'll bring the bones out of the grave and and we'll consider them still alive. They're really not in any place, really. Uh, or, Or maybe... Maybe we'll bury the bones in, in a beautiful tomb in, in a church graveyard. That would be safe. It's close to the church. Or maybe we'll bury them inside the church. There's an idea. So you go to the cathedrals of Europe and, and uh, faraway places and notice they are nothing more than indoor graveyards for the wealthy and the politically connected. Poor people are buried outside. At least they're close. Or perhaps their bones are kept in some underground vault. At least you're near the church. I have walked through the corridors underneath St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna, Austria, where so uh, many religious leaders lie in caskets on shelves of stone and plaster. The, The names and the dates of religious leaders are there on the caskets, and you can walk down hallways and see them. I've stood by the caskets of religious leaders whose burial dates corresponded with the ministry of Martin Luther, the monk who attempted to reform the church. And that reformation threw Austria and everywhere else into an uproar. I have stood in underground St. Stephen's vault before the casket of the bishop who served Vienna led it during Martin Luther's ministry. And I stood there and couldn't help but wonder because he had indeed heard, had he believed, that the just shall live by faith. I hoped he had. I looked at all the bones stacked inside these underground vaults, many of them having died in the bubonic plague of 1735. They would have considered it a privilege to have their bones stacked under, underground. You're, you're close. You're, you're close to the altar. In the basement, but no matter. It's safe. But upstairs, to be buried in the floor of the cathedral nearest the altar, that's even safer. And so, inside the church of St. Stephen's are the tombs of kings and princes and the remains of members of royal dynasties, the well-connected, the wealthy, hoping somehow they could soften the touch of the grim reaper. A few years ago, a movie came out called The Bucket List. I read it was about two terminally ill men. I didn't go see it, but it was played by two men, one Jack Nicholson and the other Morgan Freeman. They take a road trip together to do the things they always said they'd want to do before they kick the bucket. And Nicholson was interviewed by Parade Magazine before the movie came out and, and asked about his personal beliefs. And I found these quite sad. He said, well, I used to live so freely. I said, hey, you can have whatever rules you want, so I'm going to have mine. I'll accept the guilt. I'll pay the check. I'll do the time. Sounds brave, doesn't it? He said, I chose my own way. But as I've gotten older, I've had to adjust. Don't we all, when we get older, begin to think a little differently? He said, we all want to go on forever, don't we? 
but we fear the unknown. And everybody goes to that wall, yet nobody knows what's on the other side. Nothing could be further from the truth. We have been told what's on the other side of death. I have found it fascinating in my study to discover that this nearly universal metaphor of death, the grim reaper, is actually found in scripture. You won't believe in what book? Revelation. Amazing, isn't it? Turn to Revelation then and let's find it together. Chapter 14, this is the place where the hood will be taken off, so to speak, and the robe thrown aside, and mankind will discover too late that the caricature of the Grim Reaper is in reality none other than Jesus Christ, Sovereign Lord. Now before we dive into the particulars, John previews for us what is going to happen in the latter months of the Great Tribulation. John will refer to the coming of Christ and he'll use the metaphor of two different harvests that take place by reapers. Two different metaphors are used for the reaping of God's judgment on earth. One is a harvest of grain. That's verses 14 to 16. The other is what we could call the harvest of grapes. That's verses 17 to 20. Now the harvest of grain is an overview of the coming bowls of wrath that are poured out in the last cataclysmic acts of judgment upon earth. The harvest of grapes is an overview of the battle of Armageddon, where the final battle is fought as Christ returns to establish his earthly reign for 1,000 years. Both harvests include a sickle. Both harvests involve reaping. The detailed accounts of these two Harvests are given to us in chapters 16 through 19. John's just giving us an overview, a preview of things to come in these two chapters, chapters 14 and 15. Let's look at the first reaping that takes place in this harvest of grain. Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the genuine Grim Reaper. Here is is that intuitively known nightmare of mankind returning in living color. This is no cartoon. This is no joke. This is real. This reaper is Jesus Christ. Now we're told and immediately arrested by several descriptive phrases. John writes, then I looked and behold, that's his way of saying, and can you believe it? Wow. A white cloud sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. Now this is more than a a fluffy cloud. This is referring to more than a fluffy cloud cumulonimbus, or maybe even a, a, a nimbostratus. I had to look that up, so hold your applause, okay? <laughs> I had to practice saying it just right. I'm glad it came out the third time just right. This is more than those you know, fluffy white clouds we think of. Uh, the word cloud is very significant in the Bible, and you can trace references to clouds and the appearance or the power of God. 
There's the cloud of of God's Shekinah glory that is referenced. In fact, it's here in Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. This is the brilliant display of God's glory. And this cloud just sort of follows the Lord from eternity to eternity. And you find him tracking, as it were, surrounded by the Shekinah brilliance, referred to as a cloud from Old to New Testament. This is the cloud that Reference God's presence as it led the Israelites in their wandering through the wilderness in Exodus 13. This is the same cloud that appeared when Moses was given the law on Mount Sinai, beginning in Exodus chapter 19. This is the cloud that covered the Lord when he came to speak to Moses after Moses selected the 70 elders in Numbers 11. Now, this is the cloud of glory that filled the temple when it was uh, completed. First Kings chapter 8 reads that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand and minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is more than fluffy vapor. This is a reference to the Shekinah glory of our sovereign God. In fact, when Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit uh, as she, a virgin, conceived by the power of God, A.T. Robertson, the noted Greek scholar, said that these words suggest that she was overshadowed by this cloud of glory encircling her, representing the presence and power of God. This is the same cloud that received Christ as he ascended into the heavens, Acts chapter 1. This is the Shekinah glory that knocked Saul off his horse, causing blindness as he raced toward Damascus to find and and persecute more Christians. These are are the clouds of Shekinah glory that envelops the church as she is raptured to meet the Lord in the clouds, in the air. That is the very presence of the glory of God, this unbelievable brilliance perhaps seen only by us as we're raptured. These are the clouds of Shekinah glory that that, that Daniel spoke of where a, a son of man, which is a reference to the Messiah, will return with the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7.13, in other words, he's going to return one day to earth with a display of divine brilliance and splendor. Jesus Christ said of himself in Luke chapter 21, they shall see the Son of Man coming in the cloud of great glory. So picture in your mind, this is brilliant light displayed to all, speaking of the full and glorious deity of our Lord Christ. So here he comes, which, by the way, means we're there with him. This is your future, your reading. We're not just floating on some fluffy cloud. This is a reference to the fact that when we return with Christ to set up his kingdom, we're going to be surrounded by the brilliant light and incredible splendor of our sovereign's glory. We're in here. This is our future experience. Now, you may have wondered, as I read certainly struck my mind why John would write a son of man instead of the son of man in verse 14. I believe it's more than likely to strengthen the connection of his statement with the prophecy of Daniel, where Daniel refers to a son of man, a messianic title. 
So John refers to him this way. In fact, there's no question in Daniel 7 who this is. Nor is there any question in Revelation chapter 14. John will also use the expression a son of man in chapter 1 of Revelation. And there's no question he's talking about the second person of the Godhead, our Lord, living Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, notice the next phrase here in verse 14. We're told this son of man has a golden crown on his head. The crown is, the Greek word is stephanos. It was a crown given to conquerors. Those who were victorious, it was given to athletes, it was just a simple wreath. It would be given to those who were victorious soldiers. A general returning in victory would wear a stephanos. Later on in chapter 19 of Revelation, that word will be changed from stephanos to diadema, which gives us our word diadem. It's the crown of the monarch. So Christ is coming here back to reign and he's coming and in his his initial coming he's announcing his victory. He is the victorious general and a battle will ensue for just a brief moment in human history. Later he will sit on David's throne as the monarch, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And by the way, before we go any further, here in this text you are reading for the last time any reference to Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. This is it. The Lord often used this phrase. In fact, it was his preferred title as he would emphasize his full humanity and yet his messianic title referring to his full deity. He, God incarnate, had come as God's anointed. But here in Revelation 14, verse 14, this is the last time you hear this title used. I think it's interesting. The first time we ever saw this title is in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, where we're told that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, he owns nothing. And now in this last time the title is used, we're told he owns everything. He's coming to claim the world as his own. He, God incarnate, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the embodiment of deity. Got a knock on the door. Two Jehovah's Witnesses came, interrupted my study of this very text. It's perfect timing. I just wouldn't let him go either. I got to practice. I, I need to practice. And, and they pulled, the other friends pulled up, waited. They three times, we, we, we really, thank you, sir. We really need to, need to leave. No, you stay right there. I'm not done yet. <laughs> I finally cut them loose. They were happy to leave. The first time Jesus Christ came, he came in poverty. The second time he comes, he comes in power. But don't miss it. The first time the Son of Man appears on the scene, he comes as a sower. Now he comes as a reaper in divine judgment. And he will come wrapped in the Shekinah glory of his own deity, displaying the fullness of the Godhead. Now just as we've seen many events take place on earth during these days, signaled by some announcement by an angel who sort of pulls the trigger So an angel pulls the trigger, so to speak, on Christ's judgment of earth. Look at verse 15. 
And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the, on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, in these bowls, not all unbelievers die. In fact, uh, there will be those who will be separated as tares from the wheat in the judgment following this period of time. But this will be great devastation. In fact, I, I agree with one author who wrote that this phrase, the earth was reaped, is one of the most tragic and sobering statements in all of Scripture, where the mercy of God is finished, so to speak. Described later on for us in the book of Revelation in these bowls of judgment. Chapter 16 will tell us that as the earth is reaped, what actually happens is you have terrible malignant sores breaking out on the bodies of those who follow the Antichrist. Verse 2. Oceans will turn to blood and every remaining living sea creature will die. Verse 3. Rivers and springs of water will also turn to blood. Verse 4. The sun's heat will intensify, which leads me to say there will be global warming, in case you're wondering. And it will be a time of, in fact, terrifying judgment. Verse 8, the world of the Antichrist will be plunged into darkness. Verse 10, finally, the Euphrates River will dry up to prepare the way for millions of soldiers and armies to march against little Israel in this battle we call the Battle of Armageddon. Listen, the Grim Reaper of mythology and legend is nothing compared to the divine reaper who comes in judgment. And the warning is clear to all of us today. Believe in the gospel. Believe in this one while he is still redeemer so you never fear him as reaper. He, fully man yet fully God, you come in humble faith to this Lord while he is a gracious redeemer, you never fear living through these days when you see him as the grim reaper. For every one of us who believe in Christ, we're actually going to be here in verse 14 and verse 17 and throughout. We'll be coming back with him in this future scene of judgment and victory and glory. Now what follows next is John's preview of the battle of Armageddon. Again, this will be detailed later. This is an event that accompanies the return of Christ. This is the battle against Antichrist and his forces, which brings the tribulation effectively to a close. And it really isn't much of a battle. Again, it's, it's really just a slaughter. The invading armies don't even have much time to fire off a single round before they're slaughtered by the hosts of heaven as God's wrath is poured out in unbelievable fury. Notice John's overview, beginning in verse 17. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are Right. Jesus Christ is the true vine, John 15, 1. And all, all who belong to him are, are safe. 
has contrasted to those here attached, you notice in the text, to the vine of the earth. They belong to the Antichrist. They've chosen to worship the Antichrist, and he is the wrong vine. Now, the reference you noticed here in verse, verse 18 of, of this, this angel having power over fire, it's a reference Back to chapter 8, I believe, where an angel, perhaps the same angel, took that censer, filled it with fire, and he threw it on the earth, which brought great judgment. And you notice, again, he comes from the altar. Now, we've already discovered the altar and what it meant is it represented the saints praying and and, uh, God's attention to it. It also represents those who've been martyred, and I think that's significant here in this text because Christians are still being martyred, those that are still alive. This, This angel comes, the one uniquely associated with the prayers of the martyrs. The martyrs have been calling out from the altar uh, and, and uh, as it were, God hearing them before his throne as they say, how long, O Lord, this is their prayer, how long, O Lord, will you wait? Will you refrain from judging and avenging uh, the blood of your children, those who dwell on the earth? Well, that prayer and the judgment against those who dwell on the earth, against the children of God, is about to take place and be fully answered. And this angel moves into action with his sickle, effectively reaping, releasing the judging power of God upon the enemy armies that are now marching to destroy Jerusalem, those who no doubt have been in charge of the martyrdom of, of many, many millions of believers. Look at verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Can you imagine the fullest meaning of their doom? By the way, the function of angels as punishers of unbelievers is a theme in other passages of the New Testament. John, in fact, implies in chapter 20, following the final judgment of all of the unbelieving who will be thrown into the lake of fire. The word thrown or cast indicates that they are cast. And perhaps you can envision them running somehow to flee the the judgment of God and they're literally grabbed and thrown into the lake of fire. Horrifying act of judgment which initiates their eternal state in hell. Well, here you see at this battle, the vengeance of God unleashed against the enemies of his people, in particular those who've put to death the lives of those who followed him. God's justice demands it. His holy wrath demands full payment for those who've tormented his sons and daughters and mercilessly abused his saints. The immediate context here is the vindication of tribulation martyrs. The larger context will be the vindication of every martyr who ever lived, beginning with Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain for worshiping God correctly. The first murder in human history was martyrdom. And there are people dying today for their faith in Christ around our world. I have read about, but have not seen a collection of Bibles from the 16th century. A gentleman told me that he had actually seen one in a display. These Bibles, just a few of them, 
have survived the 16th century well into that Reformation period I referred to earlier where unbelievers tortured and martyred those who claimed faith in Christ alone. These Bibles are literally drenched in blood. Forensic tests have been conducted on these Bibles and have confirmed that these dark stains on nearly every page and upon the covers are human blood. But whose blood? History answers the question. When Mary, Queen Mary, the daughter of King Henry VIII, a delightful man, ruled England, she took his character even further in the wrong direction. She was nicknamed Bloody Mary because she terrorized Protestant Christians, murdering as many as she could. Her soldiers had the practice of spilling the blood of a Christian and catching it in, the, in their Bible and then dipping their Bibles into the pools of blood that literally flowed from the veins of these martyred Christians, thus staining its pages with the actual blood of those who'd owned the Bible. A few of these Bibles have been preserved, and they're simply known as martyrs' Bibles. Let me tell you, the reign of Bloody Mary and Mayo and Stalin our child's play compared to the reign of the Antichrist and his murdering rampage against millions who will die because of their faith. And God finally moves. Finally. Now after some 2,000 years, but he finally moves in judgment and answers the prayer of the martyr. The battle will take place 60 miles north of Jerusalem, near the the mountain Megiddo, or the valley of Megiddo. We're even told here in verse 20, note this, how far the blood of the defeated soldiers will flow. Verse 20 says, and the winepress was trodden outside the city. In other words, it didn't reach Jerusalem. The battle was fought outside of the city. And blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. The metaphor of a wine press is used, and then literal statistics are given to give us the graphic enormity of the situation. The terminology suggests a sea of blood resulting from this direct confrontation on the field of of battle. The depth of blood and the, the land area covered are statistics that tell us the staggering amount of blood loss from what will be millions upon millions of soldiers who come against, who march against God, his people, the remnant. And they will be destroyed. Ezekiel's description of this battle informs us that the early days of the millennial kingdom are going to be clean up. It's going to take um, seven years to get rid of all the weapons massed in this valley. It'll take seven months to bury the dead. This kind of devastation is hard to imagine, isn't it? However, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, described the earlier destruction and slaughter of the Jews in Jerusalem in AD 70 with these words, the Roman soldiers filled the streets with dead bodies and made the whole city run down with blood. To such a degree indeed that fires of many of the houses were actually extinguished by the flow of blood. 
John uses the imagery of a wine press to show us the terror of it all. Where grapes were trampled underfoot and the juice would flow to a lower vat where it would be collected. Millions of people then in this image are crushed by the hosts of heaven, squeezed as it were, drained of their blood, which will flow to a height of four feet for 200 miles. But think about the irony of this scene. It struck me as I studied, these are they who have rejected the blood of Jesus Christ, which flowed freely for them as he paid the penalty and experienced the wrath of God for them. But because they've rejected that, because they rejected the flow of Christ's blood, their blood will flow freely as they experience the wrath of God. For having rejected the one who had earlier experienced the wrath of God on the cross. It is either they come to the one who shed his blood for them or they shed their blood at his hand. But isn't that true for everyone? You either allow by faith the Son of God to pay for your sin or you pay for your sin. This is the horrific, crushing wrath from God. It's a picture of hopelessness for those who've chosen to follow the Antichrist. And this picture of the coming judgment is horrifying for all who refuse to worship the one true and living God, even though the angel has, has circled the globe earlier, calling out the warning, as we studied, warning them to follow after the true and living God and not the Antichrist. So in a tighter context, this speaks of these who've disbelieved. In the broader context, it gives us a view into the future. Ladies and gentlemen, we happen to know what's on the other side of the wall. We know what's beyond death. It is the eternal state of either glory or, or, or tragedy. And there's no way to run. There's nowhere to hide. There's no way to escape the touch of thee. Grim Reaper. Peter Marshall often told a legend while he pastored. He pastored a church downtown Washington. He served in the mid-1950, 1960, somewhere in there, as the chaplain of the Senate. Amazing preacher. He often told a legend of the Middle Eastern servant who went to the market to purchase food for his master's household. He turned a corner in the marketplace and came face to face with the grim reaper. He was wearing that black hood over his face, but as he raised his bony hand and his sickle, the servant turned and ran, terrified that death had come for him. He ran to his master and begged him to allow him to take a horse and flee for a few days to the nearby village of Samara, where some friends lived, and his master agreed the servant raced to the village and his master went on to the marketplace to purchase the food himself. He also turned that same corner and came face to face with the grim reaper. The reaper seemed uninterested in him. 
And so he rather boldly asked, Why did you threaten my servants so? The reaper asked, What do you mean? Well, you raised your sickle to strike him dead, and he ran for his life. The grim reaper said, Oh, him? No. I raised my hand in surprise, wondering why I would meet him in this village. You see, I have an appointment with him tonight in the village of Samara. Now, most people who try to escape don't flee on horses. But some try to make sure they get buried in a church. Some join a church. And maybe that's safe. God isn't as interested in where you're buried or what you've joined as he is in where your trust is located in whom you believe. Ladies and gentlemen, for those who've placed their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ, there is nothing to fear. You are, you have been, and you will forever be forgiven by faith in Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all unrighteousness. I love the tense of the verb. It means the blood of Jesus Christ constantly, continually cleanses from all unrighteousness. Why? Because we are constantly, continuously unrighteous. And so we come to this one whose blood shed freely for us. Continually, actively cleansing those who've admitted their sin and come to the cross for forgiveness. So let the text in Revelation deliver not just a warning, but an invitation to come to Christ who will cleanse you from all your sin. Jesus Christ is either your great redeemer or he will be your grim reaper. Before she died several years ago in a moment of surprising candor on television in an interview, interviewed by a believer, a well-known secular humanist and novelist, Miss Lasky, no friend to Christians in general, by the way, throughout her life or the gospel. She said these interesting words. She said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Well, let me tell you what I would tell her. There is someone who will forgive you. The wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life through whom? Jesus Christ. Our Lord. We who believe have a Savior. We have someone to forgive us. Someone who has paid the penalty for all of our sin. We who believe in Him will ride, as it were, the cloud of Shekinah glory. We shall come and reign with Him. We say it, we believe it by faith because it's in the Word, and we do not understand it. We can't even comprehend it. 
I can't wait for that ride. It's going to be exciting. Can you? The splendor of his coming and he's going to allow us puny people to be co-reigners with him. Can't imagine that. Why? Because we're worth something? We are only because he has forgiven us and we belong to him. We're his sons and daughters. We have a great Savior who has a great future planned for those who believe. If you have been running from God, run no further. If you have in your heart been saying no, say yes. Deal with your moment of death now while you live. While the grace of God is available. Father, thank you for the gospel. On one hand, it is terrifying news. On the other, reassuring promise. Thank you for those in this assembly who can raise our voices, though our lips tremble, with praise to our fearful, holy, just, gracious, forgiving, redeeming Lord. Sing with me, amazing love, how can it be? Now in light of his great love which he bestowed on us, this great grace of which we have studied and sung, may that motivate us to love him in return and live in the power of his might and name and look forward to the day when he takes us up, perhaps today, and if not today, resurrects us and we return to reign with him. Live in the light of that today. 